I'm Toby Kincaid. Let's be honest. Big oil runs the world. The single biggest source of air pollution in the world is car exhaust. And this is no small matter. This is a lot of pollution. Millions of tons per day of partially consumed hydrocarbons are polluting the planet. Now, the health costs, not only to ourselves, but to livestock and to the plant kingdom in general, uh, goes way back and has a lot of momentum. I mean, let's face it, we've, we've been polluting the air for a long, long time. Now, the atmosphere is just this thin envelope around the Earth. It's only about 60 miles thick. And all of life is contained within this hydrosphere, the oceans and the atmosphere. Now, the, the air is a very small fraction of weight of mass compared to the oceans. You know, it's just a three-tenths of a thousandth of a percent in mass. But it, so it takes very little to, relatively little, to pollute the air compared to the ocean. But we can't talk about the atmosphere, we can't talk about air pollution, unless you include the ocean. Because there's a very dynamic exchange of gases going on between the atmosphere and the oceans all the time. So one uh, nasty little characteristic is that when CO2 levels build up, they diffuse into the water and, and form a weak carbonic acid. Now, this weak acid is, is devastating to all the little critters in the sea because they're making their little shells out of limestone, out of calcium carbonate ions in the, in the water. Well, when you introduce a, a carbonic acid, it reacts with that base and uh, turns into CO2 and it dissolves the shells so they can't even form in the first place. This is a major threat. Now, the atmosphere, as you remember, is uh, made of two major gases, really, that dominate. Nitrogen is 78%, and oxygen is 21%, constantly being renewed and exchanged with the plant life on Earth. It's generated from photosynthesis. That's our source of oxygen in the world. But it's really the trace gases that really matter. You know, carbon dioxide, if, if we had... If we didn't have any carbon dioxide, if we didn't have any greenhouse gases, uh, then um, our climate would be like Mars, be about nine degrees below zero as an average temperature. You know, if you have too much carbon dioxide, then you're, you're like Venus, where it's near the melting point of lead on the surface. So trace amounts of greenhouse gases really matter in how the atmosphere operates, in how much energy that the atmosphere can capture. So it's these trace pollutants, these greenhouse gases that are very, very reactive. A carbon dioxide, 30 times more than that is methane. Methane is an extreme greenhouse gas. And with, you know, a billion and a half cattle on Earth, that's producing a lot of methane. The decomposition creates a lot of methane. Weaking, uh, leaking gas wells, leaking wells all over the country with this hydraulic fracturing, with the fracking, uh, is a potentially a absolutely catastrophic source of methane. Imagine what would happen to all those wells with a 100 or 200 year event earthquake cracking all those casings. Tremendous danger. Another greenhouse gas is ozone. Um, 
Ozone near the surface is not so good. Ozone up in the stratosphere, that's much better for us. We need ozone. You know, without ozone, 99% of the UV would get through and make life on Earth impossible. We'd have to all go back to the beginning and live underwater to, pr to protect ourselves from the UV. But it's really interesting when you often hear usually lobbyists say, well, you know, the Earth is so vast, these systems are, are so large, it's really hard to consider that man could have any effect. <laughs> well, they couldn't be more wrong. Uh, we have a lot of effect. And it's really uh, an interesting story. Uh, there was a famous physicist, uh, Milken, and he was a great um, theoretical physicist, among other works. But he made a, a very famous faux pas. In 1930, he was giving a speech in New York, I believe, and he was talking about, you know, the earth is so vast that human beings really can't really foul it up, so don't worry about it. Well, he also was famously uh, absolutely wrong. Uh, we have an, an enormous effect because in 1930, a chemist named Thomas Migley, Thomas Migley uh, was a chemist, and Thomas Migley, well, had more effect on the stratosphere than any organism in the history of Earth. Because what Thomas Migley invented was the uh, halocarbons, the CFCs, the chlorofluorocarbons. Uh, he invented Freon. So in 1930, Milken was saying, hey, we're not going to have any big effect. And Migley, Migley invented the Freon, which of course is a CFC. And uh, he did so for refrigeration and other uses, spray cans, propellants, and so forth. But the problem became, and this is, this is unintended consequences, that these CFCs were, were so chemically stable and useful. You know, he used to do these lectures where he'd take a big breath of Freon and then blow it out on a candle, and the candle would go out and no ill effect to him. So he was thinking, hey, these are really safe, stable molecules, really useful. Well those molecules migrated up to the stratosphere and a dirty little secret emerged that when exposed to ultraviolet the CFCs would break down and they would turn into these secondary reagents which would then attack ozone. Now this is really a big problem because if we don't have ozone protecting us from the ultraviolet radiation Life on Earth will, will collapse rapidly. I mean, if, if the phytoplankton and the microalgae cannot grow, then the whole base of the food chain uh, is disrupted and all higher organisms will collapse. So it's a really serious matter. And it's interesting that this was really reported um, and then measured, you know, in 1985. And uh, what the Montreal Protocol came in about 1987, so, in a few years, the scientists were able to talk to the politicians and say, look, this is big-time serious. So, it's interesting to see how the whole world mobilized and realized if we just release these CFCs as we wish, we actually can, can tip over the entire Earth. So, when Migley invented Freon, an entire new world of impact was beginning to happen. So it's amazing that under the Montreal Protocol, so many countries were able to act. Now, we still release a lot of Freon. And these, the, the, these CFCs are so stable that um, it takes a century for them to break down. So we still have a loaded time bomb. You know, the CFCs released in 1960 are still going to be around until, you know, 2060. So until a century after the protocol, 2087.
So these are ticking time bombs of toxicity. Now, all of this is important because the one thing that we can do and what the world is ready to do, and it'll do so because of the benefits. It's it's not what it costs, it's what it makes. The benefits of obsoleting the gasoline internal combustion engine. The automotive manufacturers now all over the world, the Japanese, the Europeans, the Americans, we have fabulous electric cars now. The last missing piece is that infrastructure. And that's the step where we're talking about now in this big battle between the historic battle between big oil and the electric car. So, you know, we, we've been polluting the world for a long time. This, this pollution issue is big. I mean, we've been burning a lot of coal for three centuries and millions of tons of coal per day are now burned per day. So this is causing a tremendous change in, in our atmosphere. And carbon dioxide, you know, when, back in 1800, it was like 270 parts per million. And then in 1900, it's 295. And then by 1950, it's 315. And then by the year 2000, it's 360. And now I believe it's 380 and, and knocking on the door 400 parts per, per million. That's a very dramatic change. And the problem is all of this carbon we're releasing into the atmosphere is ancient carbon. You know, Mother Nature sequestered all of this carbon. We are releasing it in the geological blink of an eye. And that will have consequences. And it is having consequences. I mean, look around. How is your weather? The atmosphere is building up more and more energy. But the greenhouse gases, if we continue this idea that we can tap hundreds of millions of years of photosynthesis simply to go to 7-Eleven, uh, is unsustainable. It will not work, and we are going to tip it over. So instead of talking about what we're going to do in the year 2030, why don't we talk about right now? And right now, the electric car has pulled off one half of its big... Uh, of its big uh, transition, and that is the technology of the car is excellent. Range, excellent. Charge time, fast. The electric car has all of the tools in its quiver to absolutely obsolete the internal combustion engine around the world. In five years, this could be done. Now, we're not talking about your old classic cars. There still will be gasoline around. Don't worry. You know, there's 120,000 gasoline stations in this country, and all of them leaking. The, the soil remediation is, is, is the, the cleanup that needs to be done in this transition is enormous. So no one will lose a job. Let's take some money and hire everyone who's displaced and get them to work cleaning up the fossil fuel mess that three centuries and lately with combustion, internal combustion in the last 130 years, we've really been piling it on. But what's missing? The last step, you know, it's like a poker game. You know, you can bluff all you want, but at the end of the day, who has the cards is going to take the pot. So, you know, you have to wait till you really have all the cards to really make your play. And the last card remaining for this electric car revolution is the charging infrastructure. Now, earlier, we were talking about, in part five, how the demand charge of the utility is this kind of, hey, if you use too much at any one time past a certain point, we're going to give you this big, whopping extra charge. And it's huge. Um, It can amount to 85% of your electric bill. 
has nothing to do with the kilowatt hours, the energy that you bought. No, no, this is on top. This is a power charge, a demand charge. If you go beyond a certain level, turn on too many machines during a peak time. So what the Americans have done and pioneering in this battle of the charging protocols is a new class of lithium-ion-based battery packs are being developed. And these are fast charge packs and fast discharge packs. Now, this is the missing link by combining several infrastructures. We're going to take solar and wind. And by the way, the big classic objection is, well, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So solar and wind is uh, not, not workable. Oh, my goodness. Of course, <laughs> this is absurd. Um, batteries are what you use. We've known about batteries quite a long time. But what's neat about the electric vehicle is that the batteries are distributed. It's not a centralized battery, like a big battery under a wind turbine. No, 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 no. Since they're connected to the grid, we're going to use the grid as the transmission system to take it from these variable renewable energy generators and transmit that power to an infrastructure of distributed electric cars that take the charge, that are charging up. There is your battery. So now you have a battery where people need it in their car. In fact, in the future, with smart grids and with smart cars, in an emergency, you may even, uh, you may even be asked by your utility, can we pull some power back from your car and we'll pay you extra for it? to relieve the stress on the grid during peak load. Amazing. So the whole economics will change just like every industrial revolution always does in the blink of an eye. It'll be very fast. Now, this infrastructure is well known by the automotive manufacturers. They're preparing for it. But somebody is going to come in, some third-party company is going to figure out how to decouple the utilities produce their own energy with renewables, and then be able to charge these battery packs. And, and that is the strategy to get away from that demand charge, by the way. With the utility, we can use these battery packs. So, for example, at night, at night you're charging, or from renewables you're charging, and then the utility who's providing some power for charging the vehicles, they, they don't see the fact that a car just came in and is being fast charged because the battery pack is doing it. So the, it, it's insulating and decoupling the utility from the charging of the vehicle. So the utility can't slap on that huge, and it is large, demand charge. So that's been a hurdle that's being technologically overcome. So these, the, the, we see now a convergence of almost everything required to come in and become a new electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which we already have through the grid. You use the grid as a conduit. The grid operators make money because they take a little piece of it. This is called wheeling. All the utilities do this. So now we'll let them do it with a new range of, of uh, generators, uh, solar electric, wherever it is uh, workable to put in. And there's lots of, of area above roads and other... other um, Spaces that don't require that you put them unattractively around us. You know, some houses should not have solar on the roof because the house is beautiful as a house. So let's put the solar on the fence. 
You know, there are many creative solutions to how we want to integrate these clean energy generators, but it changes the economics, and that's the key. The automotive manufacturers have made the electric vehicle. It is now obsoleted. It has obsoleted the, the gasoline piston engine. And there are for so many reasons. You don't have a fuel cost if you have the right technology. You don't have the toxicity. That's a big deal. In fact, that's the single greatest thing that's going to begin to reverse this outdated 20th century notion that the world is going to run as it always has on fossil fuels. Well, the king is dead. Long live the king. <laughs> <laughs> 